Thanks, Joel. Uh, wonderful to hear from Susan. Uh, we have been praying for Susan for over a year and a half. And she's been in and out of the hospital and in and out of rehab. And so we continue to pray for our dear sister. Glad that she's here with us the last few weeks now. Um, also wanted to mention for next Sunday, Creativity Sunday. You got it. Most of you received an email about that. Um, not just if you can bring an easel, but if you're bringing any art to display, please let the office know uh, in the next couple days uh, so we know how much to set up and how many easels we'll need and all that kind of thing. If you're gonna, uh, we, we, we encourage all of you to, uh, to bring something that you uh, maybe have painted, uh, photographs, anything, anything that displays God's creativity because that's what we're going to celebrate together uh, this next Sunday. So, there's one company that recently published this list of awareness days for its employees. Now, I know that you can't read that, so I'm going to read just a couple of them here, hit some of the highlights. Uh, uh, the week of September 23rd, we missed it, was Bisexual Awareness Day. Uh, also, the, that same week, Celebrate Bisexuality Day. Uh, International Lesbian Day was October 8th. Uh, International Transgender Day of Visibility was March 31st. Uh, Lesbian Visibility Day was April 26th. LGBT History Month is this month. I'm sure you didn't know that. And uh, uh, Transgender Awareness Week is the second week in November. Of course, just this past week on October 20th was International Pronouns Day. I'm guessing you probably didn't know that either. The U.S. State Department would like you to get with the program. They published an article that highlighted quote, why it matters, what pronouns you use to refer to people, and how the United States embraces sharing pronouns. Now, this is an official government website under the State Department, not what you're seeing there on screen. That's a company-issued awareness uh, dates. Uh, these are your tax dollars at work. So on the one hand, we have companies that are encouraging their employees to mark these awareness days. And on the other hand, we have the federal government promoting and affirming the use of a growing list of personal pronouns. That's uh, another one of the battlefields in our culture these days. For the uninitiated, the State Department webpage offers this helpful note. This is, again, from a government webpage. LGBTQI plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex people, with the plus signifying all the other gender identities and sexual orientations that are not specifically covered by the other initials. Now, I'm going to say something that if I said it in many companies, if I said it in most universities, many high schools or even elementary schools, or most other public forums, what I'm going to say would likely create a firestorm of rebukes and outrage. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. Until about five minutes ago, only a few things about this statement would have been controversial at all, let alone worthy of outrage. Of course, atheists have always disputed that God created, but even they would not have disputed anything about the science of male and female biology. Men are men and women are women. That didn't used to be a controversial statement, but it is now. Now the language police tell us that women are persons who menstruate or get pregnant or birthing persons. 
The times, as Bob Dylan sang, are a-changing. If you're a female service member, okay, you're serving in the military, and you do not want to share quarters with a biological female who is transitioning, you are out of luck, you bigot, you hater. The U.S. Department of Defense says so. Now, here's something else I know you're going to be able to read, so I'll read it to you. But this is a page from a Defense Department manual, and I realize it's hard to read on screen. Let me read some of it to you. A service member, and this is, this is presenting a scenario that we need to know about if we're a service member. A service member is considered exempt under the 2018 policy and has completed her transition which did not include sex reassignment surgery. Do you understand what that's saying? Okay, complete the transition, but hasn't had any body parts cut off yet. She is on her first deployment since her gender marker was changed and is assigned to female open living quarters. Shortly after her arrival, several females in the same living area complained to the senior NCO about being uncomfortable around this service member because she still has male genitalia. Excuse me for being blunt and using the words that are in here. The senior NCO approached the commander with these complaints, hoping to achieve a resolution. And then here's the key takeaway that the uh, U.S. Defense Department gives us on this. This scenario illustrates the importance of open lines of communication between service members and their chain of command, as well as standards of conduct. Service members are responsible for meeting all applicable military standards and will use berthing, I'm not talking about birth, B-I-R-T-H, B-E-R-T-H, okay? In other words, where you go to bed. We'll use birthing, bathroom, and shower facilities associated with their gender marker, regardless of physical appearance. So you understand what they're saying there, right? If you're a female and you're serving in the military and you're in a room with a bunch of bunks and there's a transitioning uh, female to male, or no, male to female, Okay, it gets confusing, doesn't it? Then tough. You're out of luck because they have declared themselves, okay? In a very short time, we've gone from gender theory being an extreme academic and cultural niche to the point where transgenderism is being written into civil rights law and even the military code of conduct, not to mention being normalized in most educational and corporate settings. There's a popular comedian, some of you who read the news uh, or watch Netflix may know uh, that there's been a special, it's been criticized, this comedian, and protested for the last three weeks about this very controversial idea. Are you ready? I'm going to tell you what this very controversial idea is. He said something about how only women can give birth. And this comedian and Netflix has been under attack for this. These are just a few of literally hundreds of illustrations that I could provide from the daily news about how our culture seems to have gone mad. Black is white, up is down, left is right. It feels to us like unprecedented times. It's not, but it feels that way to us. And it begs the question, if we're believers in Christ, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Should we protest? Should we just get upset? That's not my goal this morning, to make us upset. Should we align ourselves with a politician who sees things the way we do? Should we verbally attack those who believe such things? Now, before we move on, I want to say something else that may be controversial, and this would be controversial in some Christian circles. God loves gays. 
God loves lesbians. God loves transgenders. We should, as those who follow Christ, we should too. Loving them doesn't affirm their sin, but it affirms they're being created in God's image. So as we move forward in this, let's remember that. God's image is distorted in every sinner, and that would include every one of us here in this room this morning. So when we speak about these things, we should work very hard to be gentle and very careful of our words, very careful about how we say things. But here's where the culture really clashes with our Christian faith. Truly loving someone with agape love doesn't include affirming sin. In this current cultural moment that we're living in today, calling these kinds of things sin, even when we recognize at the same time we're sinful too, earns us the hatred of our culture. Even if we do say things perfectly, we say them with kindness, we say them with love, we are exiles. We are aliens. We are strangers in our own culture. Our beliefs and our behaviors and our attitudes are weird. Let's face it. It's weird what we believe. When we claim that the Word of God is our authority for faith, what we believe and practice, how we live our lives, we are weird. I want you to remember these examples that we've looked at already as we look at the Word and we connect how these examples relate to scriptural examples this morning. We are not unlike the exiles that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to. Now let's remember who he was writing to. They'd been captured by an evil Babylonian empire and they were taken away from the promised land. They'd been exiled because they were consistently dishonoring and disobeying the clear laws that God had set in place for their own good, for their own living and thriving and flourishing. Their hearts were far from God. So they were sent from Jerusalem to Babylon because after years and years and years of exhortations from prophets who were calling these people to repentance, they continued to resist God's call to repentance. So God's discipline and his wake-up call was harsh. They'd be conquered by an evil empire and have to live under this godless regime. So the first verse of Jeremiah chapter 29 introduces the text of a letter that was sent from Jerusalem from Jeremiah to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Included in that letter are these four verses. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So this is the admonition from Jeremiah to the people who are in exile people of God were in exile for 70 years before they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they were encouraged to make the most of that time while they were in exile 
in a foreign culture. They were encouraged to seek the welfare of the city where God had sent them. We see two important Old Testament figures, a tale of two heroes, if you will, doing just that. But that doesn't mean that things were always smooth for them or that their actions were always faithful and heroic. We look at these figures we're going to look at this morning as heroic, and in many senses they really were. First, we see Daniel among the first to be taken to Babylon. We know the story of Daniel well. He rose to positions of power and influence in that culture, but not without a lot of challenges. Several times, Daniel and his friends would not assimilate to the cultural norms, assimilate to the rulers, and their minions tried to cancel them. So there's the original biblical cancel culture. First of all, they wouldn't eat the diet the king had prescribed for them. You remember that? And then they wouldn't worship the idol of gold. And this led to the story that we know well about the fiery furnace, right? And then Daniel wouldn't stop praying to the one true God instead of Darius, who by then was the ruler and considered himself to be a god. This resistance to the idolatry of the king got him tossed into the lion's den. And we know that story well also. Of course, we know that God protected and saved not just Daniel, but his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But we also know that though they trusted in God and they trusted in his protection for everything, they didn't presume on God how things ought to go. This led to the famous statement before the king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, when he threatened them. If they didn't bow down before the golden idol, they would be barbecued. Now, I'll tell you something. Fire is a great way to cook, but it's a horrible way to die. And we read in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Of course, we know the story, right? We know that in in this instance, God did, in fact, choose to spare them. Yet let's not miss what these three said, but if not. But if not, in other words, okay? Even if God chooses in his sovereignty and wisdom, not to deliver us. We get thrown into the fiery furnace and we get roasted. They burn to death. Even if not, we won't worship your idol. We won't bow down to this untruth. We also see another Old Testament book talking about aliens in a culture who sought the welfare of the city. We're talking about Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Before Esther's heroic actions... And the threat of Jewish extinction, Mordecai even saved the king from a plot on his life. Now, we're encouraged in Scripture to pray for those in authority. Joel did this morning in our uh, prayer time. That has to include even authority we don't like or we disagree with. Mordecai helped save the life of an evil ruler. That ruler's death wouldn't necessarily have helped the kingdom. He was seeking the welfare of the city by saving the king's life. But Esther and Mordecai's resistance to the assimilation of their culture looked somewhat different. And it may illustrate some other things that are important for us to recognize together 
this morning, especially in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves today. By the time we get to Esther in history, the people of Israel had been allowed to return to the promised land. But you know what? Not everybody returned. The book of Esther takes place in the Persian period after many Israelites had already returned from exile to the land of Palestine. They returned to begin to rebuild the temple to set up the sacrificial system. Most of the Hebrew captives, however, chose not to return to their homeland. Now, they should have because both the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, before the exile took place, before they were even sent away in exile, had urged the nation to come out of Babylon after 70 years and return to the place where the Lord could bless them under the promises of the covenant that he had given them in Deuteronomy. So Esther and Mordecai were among those who had not returned to the land, and they didn't really seem too interested in complying with that prophetic command to return. Now, a lot of things are very interesting in the book of Esther. God is never mentioned. Most of you know that, right? It's the only book in the Bible where we don't see the name of God used at all. Prayer is never mentioned in the book, though fasting is. Esther and Mordecai were aware of their Jewish identity and how strange it made them look, and they hid it. They looked in most ways like your everyday Persian. No one could tell they were among God's chosen people. Now, you have to ask, I have to ask at least, was that strategic? Was that like Paul wrote, to become all things to all people? Or was it just that they were assimilated? Or is it something in between? Now, the scriptures don't really address their motives, so we want to be careful here and not assume anything. But I think it's a question worth asking. But with Daniel and his friends, there's no doubt. Their identity is Jewish, even when it made them stand out like a sore thumb. Their identity was Jewish. Even when it made them have their lives threatened, they obeyed God rather than men. Mordecai is a Babylonian name, and named after the god Marduk. Esther is a Persian name, meaning star. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. When Daniel and his friends came to Babylon, one of the ways the king tried to assimilate them into Babylonian culture was by changing their religious and cultural identity. We hear a lot about identity now, don't we? What is our identity? So the exiles were given names that were associated with Babylonian deities. Their Hebrew names, Daniel, which means God is my judge, Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious, Mishael, who is what God is, and Azariah, Yahweh is a helper. They became names that called on the help of the Babylonian gods, Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. Daniel became Belteshazzar, which means, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Shadrach became, I am very fearful of God, or command of Aku, the moon god. And then Meshach was, I am of little account, who is like Aku, and Abednego, servant of the shining one, Nebo, all named after Babylonian Persian gods. But it's interesting that we see Daniel's three friends identified interchangeably throughout the book of Daniel with their Hebrew names and their Babylonian names. And Daniel is called by his Hebrew name most of the time, except when the king is addressing him. doesn't address him, but okay. So is that just because of how these stories were recorded and passed along to us? Or did these Jews seek visibly to maintain their Jewish identity? We know that they did because of other things that the book tells us. 
but even with their names. Interesting things to ponder about these heroes of the faith, and there, there are heroes. So think about this. Esther kept her Jewish identity a secret, not telling anyone else because Mordecai had told her not to. From this and other statements in the book, it's clear from the author was making the point that God protected and used Esther and Mordecai in spite of the fact that they were living, not living according to the law commanded by God to the people of Israel. By law, Esther was not to marry a pagan or have sexual relations with a man who was not her husband. And yet this was the purpose of her being included in the harem. Esther could be contrasted with Daniel who refused to eat the things from the king's table because the food would include items considered unclean by the Jewish law. Apparently, Esther had no qualms about the food she ate. She certainly did not set herself apart as Daniel had done. So let's back up a second here. Don't hear me criticizing Esther or Mordecai this morning, okay? They were flawed sinners, just like you and me. That's part of the point this morning, my brothers and sisters. I may not always have the personal strength and conviction to be a Daniel. When you're a fish, you don't realize you're living in water, do you? This is just what I live in. It's what you know. It's the world you're swimming in. You're totally assimilated into the water. A few weeks ago, we looked at this idea in the context of Romans 12, where Paul urged us not to be conformed to this world. And we used, in that case, social media as an example of just one way that we might be conformed. Now, sometimes it can be hard for us to even recognize how much our culture is shaping us because we swim in it every day. And in one sense, we're supposed to. We're not supposed to be conformed, but we're supposed to swim in our culture. As Jeremiah wrote, we're to seek the welfare of the city or the good of our culture. Now, how can we do that if we're swimming totally outside the city or if we just separate in some way from the culture? So that's not what we're talking about here. As Jesus prayed in John 17, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. They meaning us, who Jesus was talking about. And then he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Brothers and sisters, we are sent into the world. We're supposed to be there. There's parallels between Esther and Daniel and us. Are you seeing some of these as we work through this? The book of Esther was written to encourage the returned Jewish exiles by reminding them of God's faithfulness, which he would keep the promises to the nation of Israel. It also reveals how God moves people in circumstances to accomplish his purposes. This should be a big one for us. This is God's providence at work. No miracles in Esther. We see it in Daniel, but we don't see any miracles in Esther. But also no real coincidences or happenstance or accident. Well, it just happened by accident. Wow, look how that worked out, right? It's still God. It's all God at work. But he's using seemingly normal, natural means. But he's using them. Miracle or providence, it's no less God's doing. God is still responsible and at work. We need to remember that. 
The author was describing God's faithful preservation of his people. Even disobedient people such as Esther and Mordecai, they weren't back in the land and that's what it had been prophesied that you need to do this, right? We are frail jars of clay. So was Esther, so was Mordecai, so was Daniel. Esther was not in a beauty contest simply to win the king's affections, if you remember the beginning of that story. The women were being prepared to have sexual relations with the king. This is suggested by the words, in the evening she would go there and in the morning return. One of the things I read in preparation for this message was a book called Faith Among the Faithless. And it was primarily about the book of Esther and it asked a lot of these questions that we're looking at together this morning. The author, Mike Cosper, wrote this. When you find yourself living in exile, you are tempted in two directions, conformity and isolation. In conformity, assimilation works. You adopt the worldview, ethics, and way of life of the surrounding culture, and you experience deep change inside and out. In isolation, you hedge yourself into closed enclaves where the culture can't get in and your own culture can't get out. They are equally paths of ease. It's easy to conform, and you're richly rewarded for it. It's also easy to hedge in and protect yourself, but both lead to failures. Assimilation is a failure of nerve, and isolation is a failure of heart. Assimilation fails to resist. Isolation fails to love. The prophet Jeremiah was rejecting both assimilation and isolation, calling the people of God to maintain their identity as Jews while settling down and seeking the good of the city. The truth is, as much as we sometimes lament the decline of our culture, statistically at least, we have to admit we kind of like it. We kind of like at least parts of our culture. Christians in general consume pretty much as much mass media as the rest of the world. Statistically, Christians are just as addicted to porn. Statistically, Christians are almost as likely to divorce. Christians are almost as consumeristic and just as obsessed with social media. We don't, in many of our behaviors and sometimes in our attitudes, really look a lot different from the rest of the world. We fit in. Now again, that's not necessarily bad. We don't need to look weird just to be different, right? We're Mordecai. We're Esther. We're immersed in a secular age, and we have to admit it has a deep and profound effect on us. Daniel sought the good of the city. He served the king, and Babylon benefited from his service. At the same time, he identified with his Hebrew heritage. He honored God, and his life served as a witness to another world and another way of life. So we see again and again in the Old Testament that the persistent sin of God's people is assimilation to the world around them. Despite God's law, despite multiple prophetic warnings, despite calls to repentance, God's people consistently gave in to foreign gods, to foreign wives, and unclean practices. Israel struggled in almost every generation to remain faithful. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say Christians have struggled in almost every generation to remain faithful. 
Now, the Bible is brutally honest and transparent about this. If we were to depict all the sin in the Bible and all its seediness and destruction, even from God's people, we're not just talking the evil empires, right? We'd have an X-rated movie. We would. So though this understanding is a little easier now to see Daniel as a hero who stood strong and firm, we must see that God is more than capable of using all of us despite our flaws, despite our sin, even despite what might be even our partial assimilation. Because here's what we see. When push came to shove, both Mordecai and Esther were, no doubt by God's grace, up to the task. When it came right down to it, and there was that line in the sand, they were heroes. They were not completely assimilated. The Jewish Feast of Purim celebrates this heroism even as it primarily depicts God's and celebrates God's redemption, his saving of his chosen people from the plans and purposes he had in store for them. When Mordecai learned of the evil Haman's plot to destroy the Jewish people, he urged Esther to intervene, and she did. And he reminded her that maybe she was born for that moment, right? She was, in fact, born for that moment. What moment are we born for, my brothers and sisters? Both of them risked their lives in the process. Esther made a statement similar to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, said before they were tossed into the fiery furnace, knowing that approaching the king without an invitation could literally cost her life. It would lead to her own death. Knowing that exposing her identity as a Jew could also lead her to her death. She said what? If I perish, I perish. She expressed a willingness to die. Mike Cosper wrote, this is our invitation in a world gone mad. Rather than continue the race to the bottom of victimhood, we should look at our world, ask ourselves how faithfulness to our calling as God's people invites us to participate in it, and embrace the risks that might come with it. You don't hear a lot of sermons talking about embracing the risks of living your faith, but we're hearing it here this morning. At times, that will look like Mordecai's resistance when we refuse to participate in something broadly accepted in our culture. Doing so will invite the wrath of those around us, but vulnerability calls us to do it anyway. This brings us full circle, kind of back to our opening illustrations. You remember the things that we looked at? The pressure to conform to the new sexual norms in our culture and our society. It's just one of the ways we experience the world's pressure to conform. Our culture is in a season of forced consensus. You will affirm. Being silent is not an option. Silence is violence, as one popular demonstration poster says. So when the rainbow flags start waving, you'd better join in and you'd better mean it. You'd better sing along when the latest celebrity declares themselves to be gay or trans. As an example, I've received this email three different times. I want to show it to you. I've not responded at all. But I have to admit, I do wonder when even not responding is going to come back and bite me. And I want to tell you it's going to come back to bite all of us because in this case you'd be guilty by association because you belong to TCF. But I've gotten, again, this email three times. And here it is from a woman named Emma White from a group called Trans Friendly. 
And she says, hi there, I wanted to remind you that we'd love to have your business on TransFriendly. If you're ready to sign up and get your window sticker, you can do so right now. It only takes 10 minutes, and then I can send you your window sticker. Remember, we're a not-for-profit social enterprise. So private dissent is no longer allowed to be private. We're supposed to broadcast that we are trans-friendly. Now, again, I want to go back to what I said. God loves transgenders. Okay? So in that sense, I think we are trans-friendly. But if a transgender person came to this church, which I think we would welcome, I hope we would, that would be a hard thing, but I hope we would welcome them. But eventually, they're going to have to come to terms with what Scripture says. Okay? Our culture tells us we must be assimilated. We must respect the new order of things down to our very language, the way we say things. So I believe we can stand firm for truth, even as we seek the welfare of the city, as we read in Jeremiah. Those things don't have to be at cross purposes. It's not either or, it's both and. Yet we must also have courage, for even while we may be very winsome communicators of the truth of the word, even as we are seeking the welfare of the city, we can also be criticized or even verbally or sometimes physically attacked regardless of how kind and gentle we may be in expressing these things that we believe. Let's remember this. Our belligerent neighbors, the hostile factions and anti-Christian political crusaders, the powers that be in the world of media, education, and the arts, the evangelists for secularism and sexual liberation, these are not our enemies. They are, in fact, prisoners of a much larger darker kingdom, and we can fight for their freedom by declaring war not against them, but war on their behalf. How? We can pray. We can bear witness to another world. We seek the good of their cities, our cities. We put ourselves in harm's way. We look for opportunities to lay down our lives on behalf of those enemies, and we do it. We recognize that in Christ we are already dead, so there's nothing left to lose. That's what Scripture tells us, brothers and sisters. We're dead in Christ and we're alive in Him at the same time. May the Lord give us wisdom and grace to keep us from being assimilated. And may the Lord bless us with the courage of Daniel and Esther when that's what circumstances require. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You for these tremendous examples of courage in Scripture. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for showing us that your Holy Spirit can work through flawed and even sinful vessels like each one of us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would indeed not be assimilated, but Lord, that we would be winsome communicators of your truth, even in the face of accusation, even in the face of persecution, Father. We recognize that for all of us, that's just verbal, sometimes here in the, in the U.S. and in the West, but we recognize that there's other places in the world where it's more than that, literally a threat on the lives of believers. May we share the courage of our believers in Afghanistan and other persecuted church countries. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit equip us and use us to advance your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.